Good morning. This morning's scripture is 1 Kings 21, 1 through 4. This is from the Common English Bible. Now it happened sometime later that Naboth from Jezreel had a vineyard in Jezreel that was next to the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. Ahab ordered Naboth, give me your vineyard so it can become my vegetable garden because it is right next to my palace. In exchange for it, I'll give you an even better vineyard or if you prefer, I'll pay you the price in silver. Naboth responded to Ahab, Lord forbid that I give you my family inheritance. So Ahab went to his palace irritated and upset at what Naboth had said to him, because Naboth had said, I won't give you my family inheritance. Ahab laid down on his bed and turned his face away, He wouldn't eat anything. This is the word of the Lord. Will you please pray with me? God of all creation, who's in all things, you whose sun warms us, you who are in the soil that turns death into life, you who dwell inside each one of us. We pray that as we ponder your word, we will experience your presence anew. Amen. Well, this season of creation, we are looking at how our relationship with the land changes the way we read the Bible and changes how we follow God. If you want a a fancy word for this, we are doing an agrarian reading of scripture. Uh, The basic idea is that the Bible was written for people of the land. It was written to people whose well-being depended on the soil. And 2,000 years ago, people would have seen connections that we probably miss. They would have known that when the Bible talks about our relationship with God, the Bible is almost always talking about our relationship with the land. And they would have understood that when people are disobedient, the land suffers. And when people follow God, the land flourishes. So this season, we are exploring sort of how our, our spiritual connection to creation can give us insight and help us see new things in the scriptures. And to do that, we are going to look at a couple of stories. We're going to dig deep. Uh, the first of which is one of those bizarre, violent stories that, upon first reading, seems like it has nothing to do with God. It's a story about a guy named Naboth. Naboth isn't a prophet or a king or a warrior. He's a farmer. And he only shows up in one chapter of the Bible, 1 Kings 21. But Naboth has a famous neighbor, King Ahab. Uh, King Ahab is about in the middle of the 8th century in Israel, And he's most famous for, like, 
getting into trouble with his wife, Jezebel. But we're going to learn about those two later. For now, we need to know that, that our man, Naboth, owns a vineyard. And one day, King Ahab comes up to him and asks him to buy it. Ahab wants the vineyard so badly that he, he actually offers to overpay Naboth, either with land or with cash. But Naboth refuses to sell, which seems really stupid. Doesn't Naboth understand supply and demand? A, a rich guy desperately wants the thing that only he has. So he can pretty much name his price. And yet, Naboth refuses to sell. And, and I, I get that, that he likes his land and all, but when someone offers you a, a pile of cash, you take it. You can always find different land. At least that's how it works in America. About five years ago, uh, Emily and I bought our first house. Uh, the house was, was built in 1910, and, and since that, oops, uh, just wait for that one. I, I accidentally, I meant to throw a slide in there, it was a little rushed. That's not the land we bought. That's like uh, a guy, we'll get to him, but he's an amazing person that we, almost won the Nobel Peace Prize, but we're getting there. Um, right now, I'm talking about how we sell and buy land in America. Five years ago, uh, I, my wife, Emily, and I bought a house, and, and this house was built in 1910, and since that time, it's been owned by all sorts of people, by young families, by an old couple, and even a guy named Hal, who, uh, according to neighborhood lore, got a gig painting for the city of Tacoma, and every day he would take home the leftover paint and mix it in this big barrel behind his house until he had enough paint to paint the whole house this pukey brown color. <laughs> and after about uh, 40 years of various home improvement projects, Hal retired, so like many of us, he put his house on the market and it was bought by a different family. That's, that's pretty much how it works in America. But that wasn't the case in ancient Israel. They had a dramatically different relationship with the land. The Israelites had this deep spiritual connection to the land, as the Archbishop of Galilee, Elias Shakur, often says, the land doesn't belong to us. We belong to the land. Because the land isn't something to be owned. The land is a gift that we have the privilege to care for. And uh, when I first heard that, that was like 15 years ago, it blew me away. And then I later learned that Shakur is actually uh, taking an ancient idea. And to understand it, we have to go sort of way back to the earliest books of the Hebrew Bible. It happens right as the, uh, the Israelites are about to enter the Promised Land. Before they cross over the Jordan River, God says to Moses, once you control all the land, you'll divide up the land according to your clans. The large, you will make its inheritance large, and to the small, you will make its inheritance small. In other words, when the Israelites got land for the first time, they divided it up evenly. 
according to the size of each family, so that everyone had enough land to survive. And the land itself was entrusted to the family, and every generation after had the inalienable right to farm the land. This meant that the land couldn't be sold. It, by law, had to be passed down to your children. Uh, Exodus actually explains this in detail. Uh, where it says the land must, be, must not be permanently sold because the land is mine. You are just immigrants and foreign guests of mine. That's the word of God speaking. Throughout the whole land you possess, you must allow for the land to be bought back. And, and what that's a little bit confusing, what it means is that the Israelites are forbidden from permanently selling the land. But if someone gets into debt, they can temporarily sell the land. But then after one generation, the property is returned to the children of the original owner. And that, that's called the year of Jubilee, when all debts are canceled and all property returns or reverts to the family. And, and this, this whole system uh, is called Nahala. It's, it's a, a term and an idea that sort of explains all of the Israelites' relationship with the land. And it had two purposes. The first was that it reminded people that the land wasn't a possession. It was a gift from God. And, and the other thing that it did was it eliminated generational poverty. Because even if your parents got into financial trouble, the land they sold would return to you. And it's sort of like... Welcome to the Urban Grace Weekly Podcast. Urban Grace is an inclusive ecumenical church in the heart of downtown Tacoma, Washington that seeks to be a spiritual home for folks from all sorts of backgrounds. Come check us out Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of 9th and Market. And of course, there are more details at urbangrace.org saying you can't be born poor. It also meant there was no way for land to accumulate in the hands of the wealthy. And this is the, this Nahla is the foundation of the, Israel, uh, the Israelites' economic system. It, it assured that everyone had work and food. And I'm telling you about uh, Nahla because it explains what's happening in this story. When King Ahab approaches Naboth, asking to buy the land, Naboth doesn't understand what he's talking about. It's like he's confused. What do you mean, sell the land? How's that even possible? The land belongs to God. It's held in trust for my children. And, and Naboth even says this in verse 3, when he tells King Ahab that God's law prohibits him from selling the land. Naboth, it turns out, isn't being a bad businessman. He's being a faithful Jew. And this sends Naboth into a, I'm sorry, this sends King Ahab into a deep depression. So Jezebel, his wife, comes and asks what's wrong. Ahab explains that, that Nahab, or Naboth won't sell the vineyard. So Jezebel says, hey, you're the king. You get to do what you want. She then sets a plan in action. 
she writes the elders and nobles of the city where Naboth lives and tells them to hold a party. She asks them to hire two scoundrels to sit next to Naboth. And at the party, the scoundrels accuse Naboth of blasphemy. And it's a false accusation. Naboth doesn't actually blaspheme God. But the scoundrels, they whip up the crowd. They grab Naboth and drag him into the street and stone him to death. Then, king, then Jezebel tells King Ahab that Naboth is dead and he can go take the vineyard, which he does. Naboth is faithful to God's promises, so Jezebel kills him and gets the land anyways. <laughs> From the tone, I can tell that, uh, th that this story just uh, became a bit of a bummer. I was expecting just like a couple of Game of Thrones fans that really missed the best character getting killed off, but, but this story, it's, it's more than just good theater. It's, it's really a story about what's happening with the land and how people's changing relationship with the land will, will actually lead to the destruction of Israel. The, the story I mentioned briefly, it's set in the, in the 8th century. And during this particular period in history, there is a drastic change in the economy of Israel. There's, there's a word for it, latifundalization. That's, that's a real word. And if, if anyone uses it in a game of Scrabble, you'll get a get-to-heaven free card. You, yeah, may use that wisely. Laddie fundalization, that big word, is, it's a technical uh, scholarly word for the process of land accumulation in the hands of a few wealthy elite at the expense of the poor. It's a word that describes what happened in, in Israel when people started selling their land instead of keeping it for their children. When the land was sold, the, the seller's children all of a sudden had no income. They didn't have food, they didn't have land to work. But the buyer's children became very wealthy. And in a matter of, uh, in a matter of years, a few powerful people consolidated the wealth in the nation of Israel. And, and this process, Ladi fundamentalization, it, it completely changed Israel. It changed the economy from a farming economy or an agrarian economy to a market economy. It, it created a huge gap between the rich and the poor, which soon created a wealthy ruling class that just wasted money on luxuries and a huge army they didn't need, while peasants fell into debt and struggled to survive. And this process, it's the beginning of the end for the northern kingdom of Israel. From here on out, the kings will be corrupt, society will deteriorate, and it will only be a matter of time until they're destroyed. Within 120 years, the Assyrians will invade and the northern kingdom of Israel will cease to exist. So this is not simply a story of, of bad guys being bad. It's 
It's a shot across the bow, warning people that, that once they start thinking of the land as a way to make money, they'll go down a road of unfaithfulness and violence. When we treat creation as a commodity, things fall apart. And in fact, uh, at the very end of the story, the prophet Elijah shows up and tells King Ahab that he sinned by taking the land and will be destroyed. An agrarian reading of the Bible reveals to us that this isn't just a bizarre, violent tale, but a reminder that the land is a gift for the well-being of the whole community. And, and that's, that's so easy for us to miss today because it's totally normal to us that some people have land and some people don't, especially in America, because we're undergoing our own laddie fundalization. In, in my lifetime, 38 years, the majority of Americans have become less wealthy while a small majority have become much more wealthy. And we now find ourselves in a position where this small majority controls a vast majority of the wealth. This map shows what America would look like if the land was divided by wealth. You, you see that 1%, the richest 1% would own the whole American West. The next nine rich percent would own the Midwest and the Northeast. 30% would own the South. 20% would own that southern tip of Texas. And the, 40, the poorest 40% would own a single city because 40% of Americans have almost no wealth. We're committing the same sins the Israelites did by by structuring our society in a way that benefits the few at the expense of the most vulnerable. But, but the Bible has a completely different vision where wealth and resources and land and creation are, are given to all of us for the benefit of all of us. The, the land is given to the whole community for the well-being of the community. And, and you will notice, if you, if you ever just, you know, feel like reading Elijah, Amos, Micah, Hosea, or uh, uh, Isaiah, they're furious at, at the land being sold and the land uh, losing its, like, deteriorating, both because the land prevents poverty, but, but also because God's gifts are being... God's gifts are being commit, commified. It's a big word. Um, another way to say that is the prophets are mad when people take God's gifts and turn them into profit instead of being Nahala, an in, in inheritance for the whole community. So an agrarian reading of Naboth's vineyard implores us to care for the land and, and love the land because it's a gift from God. It, it teaches us that, that our fundamental relationship with creation should be gratitude. We should always be thinking about how we can use the land for, to care for all. But, but it's not 
only the land. This same lens helps us consider all the ways we commitify God's gifts. Because God didn't just give us a fertile earth. God gave us a multitude of gifts, like our talents, our passions, our curiosities, our particularities. They're gifts from God. Those, those quirks that we have, the, the funny things that we do that make us us, they're gifts from a God who delights in us, who's, who's tickled by our weirdness. Our families, our education, our jobs, our homes, ourselves, all of it, they're all gifts. So I wonder what would happen if we saw all of these gifts as Nahala. Rather than thinking about our intellect or our education or our personality as something we possess, rather than thinking of our gifts as something that helps us get a job or helps us get friends or even helps us like ourselves more. What would happen if we saw these gifts as not belonging to us? What if our skills, our passions, and our possessions are God's promises, meant to be used for the care of all creation? Those are really big questions, and I don't entirely know the answer. I mean, imagine there'd be less poverty. Imagine we'd take care of the earth a lot better. Imagine we'd take care of ourselves better. I, I think we'd even probably love ourselves a little bit more. But, but I don't actually know because I'm not great at Nahala. It's hard for me to see the, the stuff that I'm so proud of as not belonging to me and not just being a part of my identity and my ego. But Nahala and this story calls us to a different way of being, a way I'd like to be, and a way I'd like you to join me. Amen.